Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome everybody to another episode of Science Stories and I'm really excited to announce that today I have a special guest because there's been a topic that's been around and it's been in the news lately. There are the wrongfully called killer whales that are interacting with boats in, in the coast of Spain and today we're going to talk with a, a whale specialist. His name is the Dr. Alexandre Servini. How are you doing doctor? I'm doing good Mateo and you? I'm good, thanks. Don't call me doctor, call me Alex. Okay, I will. So just to give a little, a little bit of background on your education, you are a Brazilian, you, are, you, you got your bachelor's degree from the University of Rio Grande, Brazil, and then you did a, a master's in Sao Paulo, and then you got your, right. your PhD from, from the University of, of Washington, where, it's, where you now hold a, a senior scientist position. Correct, correct. You also have a, a really important political role. Can you can you explain that to the audience, please? Uh, yes, um, I am. I have been uh, involved with the International Whaling Commission for many years, especially the scientific committee, and I am currently the the chairman or the president of the scientific committee of the IWC. And the scientific committee is a one of the various committees within the commission that provides scientific advice to all of the issues and topics that the commission deals with in terms of management and conservation of cetaceans. What would you say is the main focus of the organization? The IWC was originally established to regulate whaling uh, back in the mid-1940s. But today, in addition to whaling, There are many other threats to cetaceans, including, for example, incidental captures in fishing gear, ship strikes. So today the IWC deals with nearly all threats that are affecting cetaceans. And the scientific committee itself is, again, is the, is the body responsible to provide scientific advice on how to deal with all these threats to the commission. That's a, a great job, I, I would say. And yes, I, yes. I think we should all thank you for, for what you do. Thank you very much. <laughs> It's a pleasure to do it. It's important to help the, these animals. Yes, for sure. Alex, I'm going to take you, like, travel back in time. And I would like if you could share with, this, with the audience the story of how did you get into cetaceans? What started your interests in that? So, Mateo, I don't, to be honest with you, uh, my I don't remember when my interest started. Since I can remember, I've been interested in marine science, in marine animals, and especially whales and dolphins. My mother used to make these books for kids where she has like uh, pictures of when you were born. She has like the first tooth that I lost, the first haircut, you know, things that for her were important. And there is a page with a little squared area that says ask your kid to draw something here and I drew I was three or four years old I don't remember but I have the drawing is drawing of whales dolphins and sharks so that's you know as far as I know I was interested in this and then when I was about nine years old I was my, my parents used to take us to the beach in the northern side of Sao Paulo State in Brazil for vacation. And one day I was walking on the beach with my, my dad and my brothers, and we came across this dead dolphin, which was, you know, had just been 
captured in a net by a fisherman. And I approached the dolphin and the fisherman came towards me and I asked him what happened and he was explaining to me that he set a net and the, dol- the, dolphin-, the dolphin was catching the net and um, I got hooked. I was like, you know, I need to do something to study these animals and, you know, do things that will help conservation, that will prevent animals to die like that. And, and that specifically was a Franciscana dolphin, which is a species that is endemic to the east coast of South America, to Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina. And it is today one of the most threatened dolphins in the world. Yeah, so you saw your first bycatch, right? That's what it's called, a bycatch, when That's accidentally a, a mammal is trapped in a, in a net, or, or when any animal is trapped in a net that was not meant for them, right? Correct. That's correct. And then you saw thousands and thousands of them, unfortunately, and you yes. made that your, your subject of study. The topic of my, yeah, one of the topics of my career. Alex, do you mind if we discuss a little bit what's going on off the coast of Spain? Yes, let's talk about it. So just to tell the audience in case they don't know, the interactions between boats and killer whales have peaked in the last few months. And, and what this means is that killer whales are approaching boats and they're biting in the rudder of the boats and that truncates the ability of the boat to navigate. And so a lot of people have found themselves stranded in the ocean because of this interaction with, with these killer whales. Can you give a little bit more of a biological perspective on what's going on? Yes. Yeah. You know, these interactions, they, I think they were first documented in 2020 and they've been happening since then. And the damage to the boats have even caused a few boats to sink, which is a, is a huge problem. From a biological perspective, Matteo, I don't, I don't think that we know exactly why the animals are doing this, but the evidence or most experts believe that this is either a play behavior or a social behavior. So unlike what you see in the media sometimes, you know, the animals are not attacking the boats. They're not being revengeful to the boats or the people. It's, it's really a social or a playful behavior. And they discovered that they can play with the rudders and maybe that's what they're doing. And they don't really know that they're damaging the boats and causing all this uh, this trouble for us human beings. I also think it's important to tell the people that these animals are highly social. And, and there are examples of similar things that happened in the past with killer whales. For example, there's been a trend or, or how, how would you call it, a fashion between among them in which, for example, in Alaska, I, I read that they were catching salmon and instead of eating it, they were carrying it in its head, like as a trophy, so sort of as a crown. And, mm-hmm. and that was a behavior that was copied among the juveniles and it was like a trend and something that, that they do. Yes, it's, it's called a fat behavior, which is really a, a, a something new that the animals start to do and then others copy. And, and you're correct, killer whales are very social, are probably among the most social uh, of the dolphins and, and, and whale group. And, and other individuals, so this interaction with the boat started with three whales and now many more are doing this. And, and again, it is, it's part of their natural behavior. A lot of the species depend on these new behaviors to evolve. Um, and this is, this is very likely what's going on with these animals. It's, they are developing a new behavior. It's social or playful, but they don't mean any harm. Yeah, and I think it's also important to tell the people that you, the, the name Gladys has been mentioned a lot, and people think that Gladys is a single orca. I think it's important that we clarify that Gladys is not one orca in particular, it's a type of orca, right? That's the name correct. orcas are given when they interact with boats. That's correct, that's correct. And and they actually receive two names, so they're called Gladys something, so, for example, there is a whale that is called Gladys Blanca, which is the white Gladys, and the other one is called Gladys Negra, which is the black Gladys. So they all have a Gladys plus another name that is a you know unique identifier to, to that whale. Did you know there is a Gladys Mateo? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Not really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I, I, I spoke with a scientist in Spain, and he, he explained the whole situation to me. And apparently, Mateo was part of a gang that was like the Three Musketeers that they would approach boats, but they would never touch them. Mm-hmm. And lately, one of them started touching them. But Mateo, no, Mateo keeps his his or her distance. I'm not sure. I'm really proud to have an orca okay, name, yeah. named after me. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. All right. Do you mind if we dive a little bit more into your research? No, no, let's go. All right. So... I, I started reading your, your articles, and the most cited article, it's an article that, that it's not, I know it's not the central part of your research in particular, but I found some interesting things to share with the audience. And it's an article mm-hmm. that, that it does a comparison between of warm and cold years in the southeastern Bering Sea. Mm-hmm. And, and I found really interesting that there is something that is called a mooring site. Moor, am I, am mm-hmm. I pronouncing it pro- properly? That's correct. Okay. Mooring. Can you explain to the audience what a mooring site is? Yes. So a mooring is a, it's a set of instruments that is anchored at the bottom of the ocean. It can carry uh, different equipment to measure things in the water. So, for example, it can measure temperature. It can measure salinity. It can, uh, you know, in a mooring, we can attach an acoustic device that records the sound on the water. So a mooring is a, you know, it's, it's, again, it's an instrument or a set of instruments that is anchored at the bottom and records information across long periods of time. How many mooring sites are there around the world? Ooh, I don't know the answer to that, but there are probably hundreds of those. All right. It's, it's been a, a very widely used technique to sample uh, the ocean. Oceanographers use that for oceanographic data like we're saying currents temperatures salinity you can measure you you know we whale biologists use this to record the animals uh part of the you know the goal of this study with with that you're referring to is with a hydrophone which is an acoustic instrument that records the the sound underwater you can uh, if a whale comes close to the mooring and calls Whales communicate using sounds, and if they call, then the mooring records it, and we can understand their seasonal pattern, you know, whether they visit certain areas at certain times of the year just by listening to them. And the mooring is a very easy way to record the presence of animals without, you know, a person having to be there to physically observe the animals. Yeah, that's a a great tool for sure. And since you mentioned the the acoustic data that we can collect, you have another study in which you survey prey abundance at at this same sea at the Bering Sea using acoustic surveys. Can you you explain? Mm -hmm. So my question is, are you surveying for species of prey Quantity of prey, how, how does it work? How does an acoustic survey work? So you can do different things. There are different types of acoustic instruments. For example, if we are interested in whales, we can use something called an acoustic array, which is really you have one or a set of hydrophones that you tow behind a boat. And through those hydrophones, you can detect whales and dolphins. Again, same, same principle. They will call. And the hydrophone will receive that call and you can, number one, you will know that they are there. And sometimes you can even tell where they are relative to the hydrophone and the boat. So that's one way of using acoustics to study whales. We can use acoustics to study prey. It's a different process. In this case, and the work that you're referring to is the ship that we use has a eco sounder under the hole the hull. and what that that instrument does it it sends a beam of sound or multiple beams down to the bottom and that sound will hit either hit the bottom or hit a prey and reflects back and is recorded by the boat so by the characteristics of the sound you can say whether what's underneath is say plankton or a school of fishes and because you know the surface of the ocean that you're sampling you can kind of estimate uh, the amount of plankton or 
amount of fish, the biomass of plankton or fish that is under the boat. Wow, that's that's so amazing. that's called an acoustic survey, and again, you can you can estimate prey because whales and dolphins will prey on either plankton or fish. You can estimate the prey biomass in areas where the whales are. In the case of the whales, how precise can you be? Can you identify individual whales? In some cases, you can. There are many species of whales that can be identified individually. For example, the orcas are one of them. Humpback whales are another one. So each orca, the, the, the shape of the dorsal fin is unique to every single individual. On humpback whales, the ventral side of the tail has collar patterns that are unique to every individual. So you can identify them individually in many cases. There are some species that are harder. Alex, sorry, but, I, I uh, meant by the sound they make. Oh, by the sound they make. Yes, you can. Well, I don't think you can. For, I think some species of dolphins have what we call signature whistles, but most species of cetaceans, you can't identify the individual, but you can tell what species they are based on the sound. I see, I see. Alex, let's do our first break. And when we come back from the break, we, we're going to talk about these visual identifications because you use some drones to study it and citizen scientists. And I'm, I'm really interested about that. Sounds good. All right. Let's see the sounds you picked. Yes, what a song. Amazing. So, sorry, before the break, we were listening to Paisagem da Chanela by Lo Borges. Or Borges. Why did you pick that particular song? Uh, I picked that song because that song um, reminds me of my childhood. My father used to have a farm in the countryside of Brazil. And that song actually describes the landscapes of the countryside of, you know, uh, especially the southeast part of Brazil where I grew up. And I have a recollection of, you know, going going away to this farm with my my parents and my family. It's a song that I've always liked since since I was a kid. Nice. So that's why I picked that one. Nice. And is there any particular reason why you picked Let It Be? Uh, yes. Um, I have been a Beatles fan for as far as I can remember, but I really like Larry B because he, I like the message, the message of, you know, sometimes you have a problem and you're anxious to resolve that problem. And, you know, some, you know, it's, it's the Letty B, it's the words of wisdom, right? You know, let, let it be, let the problem. Sometimes, you know, something is going to happen. The problem is going to resolve itself or something, an opportunity is going to present itself for you to resolve it. So it's, you know, try to try to be less anxious when something bothers you. And I, you know, I think that's something that I try to adopt in my life um, almost always. 
I couldn't agree more. It's an it's a excellent song. It's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm also a Beatles fan, so I'm, I'm really not... I'm really biased here as well. Yeah, I think most people are. Yeah. So, Alex, can you please tell us about how you use drones to, to estimate the morphometric measurements and body condition of, of whales, please? Uh, yes. So, drones have, you know, in the past, probably in the past decade, become a really important and useful tool to study uh, whales and dolphins and and many other species, not only whales and dolphins, but in, in the particular case of whales and dolphins, because you can fly over the animals and you can take pictures, uh, you can actually look at the body condition by measuring the length of the whale relative to uh, the width of the body. And mm -hmm. over time, you can say, is this whale getting big? bigger or uh, fatter or getting skinnier and by these measurements uh, you can understand how the body condition varies over time both say on a on a seasonal basis in other words you know in the summer let's say a whale that migrates to feeding areas in the summer it's going to get fat because it's feeding and then it's going to migrate to breeding areas in the winter how much of the weight are they losing based on, you know, these measurements. And you can look at, you know, are ma males losing more weight than females? Uh, how the females, how does the body of the females change when they're nursing a calf versus not nursing a calf? So you can understand a lot about energetics and a lot about the physiology of whales and dolphins using this morphometrics and body condition uh, from pictures taken from drones. How was it so done? So that's one way of doing that. Sorry, how was it done before we had drones? Well, it wasn't easily done. It could be done using helicopters, for example, but it was a much more expensive way of doing it. And so it wasn't as widely done. And in some cases, you know, you could understand body condition of the animals just by examining whales that were stranded on the beach or by uh, whales that were killed during whaling. But again, it, it's much more difficult and much more time-consuming and much more expensive to do it in the old days. With the drones today, drones are so easy to operate that it's become much more widely used and you know made significant contributions for research and conservation of whales and dolphins and still making significant contributions for that. That's great. And you also use citizen science a lot. Yes. In this study, Matteo, what we were doing is these whales were whales that we were deploying satellite tags on. And there are different types of tags, but the, the long-term tags, tags that we use to follow animals for extended period of times, they require anchoring the satellite has to the satellite tag has to penetrate the skin and anchor underneath the skin so it causes a little puncture on on the skin so because it's what we call an invasive technology we want to understand whether the tag cause an effect uh, an impact to the whale so does it change their reproduction does it change their behavior their survival And for us to do that, we need repeated sightings of the tagged whales. And so this work in Argentina is done in part with the collaboration of the whale watching companies that work uh, in the site, the re our research site in Argentina. So, you know, the citizens are going out on the boat, the whale watching naturalists uh, are going out on the boat and they when they see a tagged whale they take a picture and then send the pictures to us to to look at so in that study we actually summarized that information and we have a few stories of some of those whales that we tagged and 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 we know by knowing the whale and because of the long-term photo identification catalog that Uh, one of our collaborators 
uh, has in, in Argentina, we were able to reconstruct the life history of the, the tagged whales. And again, in part because of the help from people going out on the whale watching boats and taking pictures to help us recite those whales. That's really cool. And every whale that we deploy a satellite tag, we give it a name. In the beginning, the, so this project started in 2014 and it's, uh, it's still going. And in the beginning, the names were randomly chosen. We would pick just a name that we liked. We try not to use people names or, or location places names, but we can use anything else. And one of the early whales, for example, we called, there was a whale called Butterfly. There was a whale called Blubber. So we had different names. But starting about two years ago or three years ago, we picked themes to name the whales. So two years ago, our teams were celestial bodies. So we named the, whale, the whales after the names of constellations or planets or moons. Um, and last year, the theme was semi-precious stones. So the whales were named after uh, semi-precious stones. So that's how we today pick the names. I see. I wouldn't be surprised if in Argentina, many whales were named after Diego Maradona. <laughs> or, or, yes. or Lionel Messi. You or know? Lionel Messi, yeah. yes. <laughs> and there's actually, in YouTube, there's actually a really cool video that you could tell the audience how to get there on how you do to implant these satellite tags because it's not easy at all, right? And it could be quite dangerous. And there's some certain characteristics that you have to think of designing the tag because these tags are going to go deep into seawater, so they have to be able to tolerate a lot of pressure, for example, right? It, it's a whole process. Yes, yes, it is it is a whole process. And yes, like you said, the, the instruments have to be robust enough to withstand pressure. So the, the way you deploy the tags is you go, typically you go on a small boat and you have a person with a air-compressed rifle located at, at the very tip of the boat. And... Because you cannot catch whales to put the tags on, you have to deploy them remotely. So the way we do is, is we use this compressed air rifle to fire the tag on the body of the whale. So you use the word dangerous. It can be dangerous. It's not always dangerous. And especially if you have a, a really trained group of people, people that can understand the behavior of the whale, people that can drive the boat safely, and people that can deploy tags safely, it is It is a relatively safe operation. Obviously, if people try to do that and they don't have the experience, it becomes it becomes a lot more dangerous. I don't know if it but, was uh, for the video or something, but in the video, when you were deploying the boat, the boat into the water, someone mentions that there were like six-foot waves in the ocean at that moment. So that's why I think it could be a little bit dangerous, especially if, because not of not not particularly because of the whales, but of the ocean conditions. Yes, yes, it, it could be. But, you know, more and more, um, we have learned that it's a much more effective and efficient uh, operation if we don't work in relatively rough conditions. Sometimes you have to do it. But today, we don't do this in, in rough conditions anymore. I see. Yeah, it makes sense, of course. Yeah. And from that data that you collected from these satellite tags, you, you were able to understand the humpback whale migrations, for example, a lot. Yes. And you have a paper that... It says they migrate straight as an arrow. Correct. Can you explain how they are able to orient so well? So I wish I could. And <laughs> this, I mean, this is one of the greatest, you know, most interesting questions that people have tried to address over time. These animals migrate um, in an open ocean where there is very limited, if any, reference point. I mean, obviously, there are reference points in the, there could be reference points in the bottom of the ocean, but the areas these whales migrate through are like four, five, six thousand meters deep, and humpback whales typically don't dive more than two hundred meters, mm -hmm. so they're not using those bottom, you know, uh, those references in the in the in the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting because in that paper that you referred to, we describe animals moving hundreds 
uh, of kilometers in a, almost a straight line. Sometimes they deviate less than a degree of their of their track. And how they do that, we don't know. There are theories that they use uh, electromagnet uh, cues. Um, as you know, there is you know there is an electromagnetic field around the Earth. Uh, it's being shown that some species, some other species of animals use that. It is possible the whales use that. Uh, it is possible the whales use um, uh, uh, um, uh, cues from, from water temperature or currents. It's possible that they use calls. So one whale call from one location to another location. So they kind of know where they are because different whales are talking to each other there's a number of theories and there's a theory that uh that suggests that they use celestial bodies so by knowing the position of the sun and the position of the moon for example they can orient themselves but none of these theories isolated explain how they can maintain their courses and they can navigate so precisely in an open ocean so we're still trying to figure out why they do that or how they do that, but we know they can do that, and it's and it's pretty amazing. Um, and it's probably you know I think it's probably a combination of factors. They, they sometimes they can use the electromagnetic magnetic field, sometimes they can use celestial bodies or both, and sometimes they can call. They must have multiple ways to uh, locate themselves and situate themselves into the ocean to be able to maintain those very long and precise migrations. And you say this because it's way more precise than other animals that use only one of these navigation systems. Or, or why, why do you um, assume they're using many cues? Because one, the use of one single cue does not explain how they can maintain that precision. I see. So magnetic fields have disturbances. What do they do when there is a disturbance in the magnetic field? If they're using just a magnetic field, then when there is a disturbance, they would get lost, for example. Or, you know, if they use a celestial body like the moon and the sun, if it's an overcast day, right, they can't see the sun and the moon. So how would they yeah. do that? I see. I and see. tides or so one single um, cue or one single factor does not explain how they position themselves, how they orient themselves. Yeah, it makes sense for sure. Alex, I asked, I asked ChatGPT to come up with an out-of-the-box questions for you. <laughs> and and ChatGPT suggested this. Imagine you could communicate directly with humpback whales for a day. What one question would you ask them about their lives, their behaviors, and the ocean environment that you're most eager to uncover? And, and I ask you, and I mention this now because I'm guessing it might be on this topic, what you would like to ask them, I guess. Yes, so... I think that's precisely the question that I will ask, you know, how can you navigate so precisely through open ocean without having any obvious cues? So if I could talk to a humpback whale, I would certainly ask that question. <laughs> but Maybe I also think day. that I, I would I would take the opportunity to not ask a question, but to tell them, you know, please watch out for, you know, fishing gear in the ocean, watch out for, you know, uh, vessels, uh, traveling at high speeds because these are two of the most uh, important threats to whales these days and many whales die either because they get entangled in fishing gear or because they get hit by ships so it's certainly uh, uh, you know take the opportunity to communicate with them and say please avoid this if you can to minimize impact and, and minimize mortality that would be great that, that would definitely be a, a good conversation maybe one day to have. we'll be able to do that yeah, have you seen those experiments with the when they recreate images or even songs from the neural pathways? Mm -hmm. So maybe one yep. day the technology develops so far that you can recreate what is going on inside of a brain of a whale. Yep, it would be interesting. It would be definitely interesting. So let's let's do another short break, and okay. then and then when we come back from the short break, I'll have some short questions for you, and then we'll talk a little bit more about your life and and a little bit more outside of science, if you don't mind. No, that's, that would be great. All right.
I love Tim Maia. Yes, he's great. He's the best. Great. He has so much swing. It's amazing. Yes. So, sorry, before the break, we were listening to Viva La Vida by Coldplay. It's a super pump-up song. Is that why you picked it up? Uh, actually, the reason I picked it up is because it, it became a very iconic song for me because I have a, I have a daughter. And actually today, Mateo, if you allow, today she's turning 16. So happy birthday, Michaela. Happy birthday to her. Uh, yeah. Parabéns. Yes, yes. And she, when, I, when she was two years old, I went to Brazil to visit my family and spend Christmas with them. And we went to a restaurant in the country, part of Brazil, when three artists uh, were playing violin. And they came to the table that we were sitting and played that song. To my daughter wow and she was so you know she was paying attention and she was so f focused on the music and focused on the artists that i i was so impressed by what they're doing with violin and then by her response to that so it became very iconic to me because of that and it, it is a great song like it you is said, a great it's, song, a yeah. it's i really i really like that and, and my daughter really likes it that's awesome and so that's why i picked And, that song. and this amazing song, why did you pick this one? This is because um, the, if you translate that song into English, it is the uh, explorer or discoverer of the seven seas. And the song describes many beaches and, and lighthouses and places where if you're on a boat you would see as you travel through the ocean uh, along the coast of Brazil where I started my career. So I kind of felt like that a little bit when I was doing my first surveys where, you know, we would leave from a certain place, go to another place, and, and we would either read those reference points in a nautic chart or we would see them. So it, it was, uh, you know, it was something that I was, I think I felt that I was doing. I was being the discoverer or the explorer of the seas um, at that time, early in my career. All right, are you ready for some short questions? I am ready for some short questions. All right, what's the best location for whale watching? Ooh, that is a, that is a tough one. There are many, many, many places that you can go to go, to go whale watching. I think my favorite one, and I, I, I admit that I am biased because I work in that location, is Peninsula Valdez in Argentina, where you can see right whales. But other places, great places, I, you know, I have, I have studied humpbacks off the coast of Cape Cod in Massachusetts in the U.S., and that's another great place to go see whales. Uh, you can see humpbacks, you can see fin whales, sometimes you can see right whales, you can see minke whales, dolphins. There are, there are many, the Dominican Republic, uh, Silver Bank, you can actually go dive with whales, Fiji, you can dive with whales. Man, there are so many places. Here, you know, I live in Washington State, the San Juan Islands is a great place to go see, orcas, There are many. Biggest misconception about whales? <laughs> I think that the biggest misconception is that whales are fish. I still, 
I'm surprised by the number of people that that still think or you know believe that whales are fish when they you know they're they're mammals like us. What's your most memorable moment in the field? Oh, the most memorable moment in the field. Mm, I think there are so many for me as well. I think when I think about most memorable moment, it's when I saw North Pacific right whales in the Bering Sea. So the North Pacific right whale is one of the most critically endangered species, if not the most in the world. And just the Bering Sea population is estimated at about you know less than 50 animals, more likely like 30 animals. And they're very difficult to find because they live in a relatively inhospitable environment. And I was doing surveys there in the beginning of the 2000s. And I think the first time that I saw one of those, I was like fiberglassed because they're extraordinary animals, but they're so rare. So I think that's my most memorable moment in the field. But I have, I've had so many. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to single one out. I think, you know, this is an example, but I have, I've had many. What's the funniest encounter with marine wildlife that you had? Um, the funniest encounter, I think, was when the first time that I went to Argentina to work with the north, the southern, the southern right whales, uh, we actually had a juvenile whale approach our boat and it came close and it flipped itself, it spin on its body. It just tried to be friendly with the boat and friendly with us and it was just he was just being playful and i was so amazed and and i thought it was funny that you know that animal was trying to interact with a boat interact with us what about a and scary maybe, moment i think there are two scary moments that i i don't think there was a reason to be scary i was scary because those were relatively thing and new things to me but when i was a teenager i started scuba diving and on my first scuba diving in this, the open ocean we the f- first time that i got in the water i got in the water with the instructor and what we needed to do at that time is just go down you know we had a line we had an anchor on the bottom and a line going to the boat and all we needed to do is to go down the line all the way to the bottom come back that was the first time and we were close to a, a, an island and this huge manta ray came close to us I was scared because I was like, well, what is this huge animal going to do to us? And obviously it didn't do any ma- anything. They, these animals are very uh, friendly and they, they will never attack a person. But uh, I was, I was, you know, my heartbeat was going fast at that time. And I think a second moment, it was when I was in the Antarctic. I was doing research with whales with the Brazilian Antarctic program at the time. That was the late 1990s. And we were on a very small boat, on a, on a, on an inflatable boat. And we were watching orcas predating humpback whales at a distance. Wow. And then, uh, obviously we were like, you know, we don't want to interfere with the behavior. So we should stay here and watch. And all of a sudden we hear this blow behind the boat and this orca came right behind us. And then I think he came to check us out because he came behind the boat. Then he went down, came on the side of the boat and it's pie hopped, which means it, it took the head out of the water and looked at us and then came down again and came to the other side of the boat. And we were like, you know, we were four people, four scientists in a small Zodiac that animal could flip the boat anytime he wanted. And it didn't because they don't do that or because there are no records of orcas attacking people in the wild and but it was a it was an, another moment where we were like oh what is what is this we're going to do with us yeah 100 and, and again it, it's fascinating scary. it was fascinating and after the fact you're like wow what an experience yeah but the first time and we were not expecting it so we were we were we all got kind of you know scared because we were not expecting to see the whale that close to us and, 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 and it came close to us. Alex, what about your dream research expedition destination? Uh, my dream research expedition destination is the archipelago of South Georgia in the South Atlantic. And there are many reasons that I would like to go there. So this is where this, it's, it's, it's a whale paradise. There's so many species there. 
Um, it's where commercial whaling started in the Antarctic back in the beginning of the 1900s. That's where the first whaling stations were established. Uh, these whales, uh, the whales around South Georgia were almost exterminated um, within, you know, 50 years, 60 years. Um, it is the recovery now. They, it's a, it's a, it's a magnificent place. It's the, the, the geography, the landscape, it's beautiful. So one of the projects that I started first started in my career, early in my career was this, you know, we talked about this study to track humpback whales using satellite transmitters. And our goal was, you know, we didn't know where the Brazilian population of humpbacks migrated to in the summer. So they come to the coast of Brazil to to reproduce in the winter and they might they migrate to, you know, high latitude waters in the summer, but we didn't know where. And once we put the satellite tags, we discovered that they were going to South Georgia. So the Brazilian population of humpback whales was the first population of whales, of humpback whales to be severely harvested and almost nearly exterminated by whaling back in, you know, in, in the beginning of the 1900s. So there's a lot of things that attract me to South Georgia. I never had the opportunity to uh, visit the islands and I really would like to go one day. Alex, what's the best way to unwind after a day of fieldwork? <laughs> it depends on where fieldwork is, but I think my favorite would be a good meal and, you know, if I can, a beer with uh, my friends, uh, followed by a good night of sleep. Fieldwork is typically very time and energy consuming, so I certainly would like to get a good night of sleep after. A, a long day of field work. So I actually spoke with one of your colleagues that worked with you and she was particularly surprised by the amount of energy that you have. That <laughs> apparently when everybody is tired, you're still able to keep going and focus on the work and just you never seem to get tired. What's what's your secret? <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I think, you know, if it is true, Mateo, it's because I really like what I do. I... I don't think that I, I like to say that I get paid to do what I like to do. And I really enjoy doing science. I really enjoy being in the field, working with animals. It's, and I think when you do that, it's really not that tiring. It's, it's, you know, I, I take a lot of, I'm very, very grateful to be able to do this. And it's, it's pleasurable for me. True or false? A bad day at the field still better than a good day at the office. I think it's false. And I'll tell you that I have some really good days in the office. And I'll take a good day over a bad day anytime, anywhere, you know, in the <laughs> office yeah. or in the field. So I, I would say it's false. But I know that, you know, that's probably a not a unanimous uh, opinion. I, I'm just asking because it's a saying I've, I've heard a lot during yes, my, yes. my research. Yeah, yes. and, and I can see why, why people have that saying. But, you know, to me, again, I, the office work sometimes is as um, rewarding as the field work. I agree with you 100%. I'll take a good day in the office over a bad day at the field, for sure. Yep, yep. Alex, do you mind if I finish with kind of a cheesy question? No, I don't mind. So remember that story that you told at the beginning about your 10-year-old self discovering this tangled Franciscana and this bycatch and that, mm -hmm. and that kind of set you up for life to, to try to, to make an effort to, to preserve these wonderful cetaceans and, and marine mammals? Mm -hmm. If you could talk to your 10-year-old self, what, what would you tell him? Do you, do you think your 10-year-old self would be proud of you now? Um, I hope so. Yes, I hope so. I think, uh, I think, um, I never thought about this, Matteo. That's a really good question. But um, I think anything you can do, I think us human beings, we are changing the world, changing the environment in a way that I don't think we knew or we expected, certainly my 10-year-old self didn't know 
uh, that and probably didn't expect to see what we see today. So I think I would tell my 10-year-old self, anything you can do to minimize the impact of humans in the environment is going to help nature. So that, that will be the main message. But I hope my 10-year-old self is proud of you know what I've accomplished through my career. I, I definitely and, would think so. Yeah. So that will be my message. There's many messages from my 10-year-old self, <laughs> but uh, I think that will be the main one. Alex, did you have a good time? I had a wonderful time. Thank you for inviting me, Matteo. Um, one thing that I was going to say, you know, we talked about telemetry and satellite tags and, uh, and the work that we do in Argentina. And I was going to say, if your, uh, if your audience is interested in, in more of that work, there is a website that is called siguendoballenas.org. Uh, and if people want to go there, they will see, um, a lot of information on tracking southern right whales so i just wanted to mention that because that's that's a cool website and cool stories about all these whales that we work with in argentina i will add the website to the description of the episode so people can go and look it up for sure that would be great that would be great absolutely well thank you so much for being part of science stories it was an, an amazing episode i had a great time too thank you i had a great time and i appreciate the opportunity to be here And I wish you all the best for the upcoming episodes. Thanks, thanks. Wow. Wow.